Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. Welcome to another episode of uh, the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. I am your host, Michael Wangwa. Uh, today we are going to be exploring uh, the nexus, the impact of um, the Tigray uh, war or, or the conflict in Ethiopia uh, on uh, the economic growth in Ethiopia. Uh, today we are joined by uh, William Davison. Uh, William is a senior analyst for Ethiopia. Uh, senior analyst for Ethiopia at the International Crisis Group. Uh, William is a, a, a very renowned um, journalist and he's previously uh, the Bloomberg's Ethiopian correspondent from 2010 up, up to 2017. And uh, William has published extensively in The Guardian, uh, Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, Christian Science Monitor and other international media. And William is also the founder of uh, Ethiopian Insights. Uh, William, you've had um, uh, a very, very uh, long and impressive career, you know, in in, in doing in your, in, in your journalism, and or particularly um, researching and living in Ethiopia. Uh, I wanted to ask you. I wanted to start by saying, uh, in the last fifteen years, we've seen uh, Ethiopia has made a, a record growth in its economy. Uh, with its economy growing up to 10% per year. Uh, first of all, or what, what are the factors that have contributed to this growth? Thanks very much, um, Michael, for having me on the on the podcast and, and for the question. Um, I think, I mean, first of all, I think we always need a, um, a quick you know, caveat when it comes to these, these growth statistics. Um, I mean, we're starting from, from quite a low, low base in Ethiopia. Um, which of course uh, makes high growth rates more achievable, um, and then also there's you know, a certain amount of um, uncertainty with regards to the you know, the precise GDP figures um, that, that come out um, because of the the difficulties of um, and the um, the deficiencies in collecting uh, data in, in Ethiopia. Um, but primarily, you know that growth sort of. We could sort of say it started around 2010, um, and of course it had a number of, of components to it. But I think the, the critical one was that it was part of, a, or that it you know, accompanied was accompanied by or driven by a large public spending um, program. 
Um, and a lot of that public spending was into um, infrastructure, um, you know, health um, systems, education, but also your know, sort of hard infrastructure like roads and railways and uh, telecoms infrastructure, hydropower dams, um, also factories, you know, sugar factories, mostly um, projects overseen by state-owned agencies, and a lot of them um, funded by um, borrowing from, from China. And so often the, the contractors, the major contractors were, were China. Um, now, of course, this wasn't the only reason for, for growth in, in Ethiopia. We also saw um, you know, some decent increase in foreign investment um, into the, um, you know, the, into the floriculture sector, for example. Um, and there was something of a domestic construction boom as, as well. Uh, these things all played their, their role, of course. But I think the biggest and uh, most important component of the growth was that sort of Chinese credit-driven infrastructure boom. And that was sort of, you know, we could say sort of roughly 2010, 2015 were the sort of peak years of that boom. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much, um, um, William. But in the last in the last three years, we've we've uh, Ethiopia has been experiencing uh, high intensity um, conflict between uh, the Tigray uh, Tigray People's Liberation Front and, and the Ethiopian uh, government forces. Uh, the question I wanted to ask is, how does this impact on that growth? But before before we get before we even begin to talk about high impacts on it, maybe our listeners, you know, we want to know. What is this conflict? What are the dynamics of this conflict? Um, well, the, the, yeah, the conflict between the you know, Tigray region's government, the ruling party, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, and the federal government. Um, unfortunately, that's just been uh, one of a number of violent uh, episodes in Ethiopia. And we could sort of go start to go back over a, a decade to look at that period of increasing violence. But this was, um, as you're well aware, the most serious outbreak of violence and it was a civil war um civil war which also had the involvement of eritrea's government and military and that was from 2020 to 2022 um and you know, to some extent um we could say it was the result of a sort of elite power struggle but it was also a, a war within a federation um with the, the the rulers the leaders of tigray region the tplf um, essentially acting in defiance of the federal government. Um, that really came to a head with issues surrounding um, the delay, the, fe the federal government's delay of elections due to the pandemic, the Tigray regional government's decision to push ahead with regional elections. That was the sort of straw that broke the, the camel's back or the final straw. Um, and that led to this um, disastrous two-year conflict um, as the federal government tried to sort of bring Tigray back into line um, and, and, and ensure that the federal government was the supreme authority in Ethiopia. Um, and there was you know, a, a two-year war that was quite dynamic in terms of swings on the, um, the battlefield, but thankfully it was brought to an end um, in, uh, with a November uh, 2022 peace deal. And that has not resolved a lot of the political issues that led to the um war in the first place um, and there were a number of actors involved particularly on the federal government side um, who were not happy with the peace deal but it has brought to an end um the large-scale fighting that caused so much devastation in tigray and also in surrounding regions as well hmm. 
Speaking speaking of how how does that how has that impacted on on that economic growth that um Ethiopia had, had enjoyed or has enjoyed in the last fifteen years? How has that in a two year war impacted on that? Well, it's exacerbated an, an economic downturn. Um, and the the the, the, you know, the the bigger picture here, I mean, as I mentioned, I guess quite civil unrest. Um, impactful civil unrest started in around 2014, 2015. So we've seen quite a lot of political instability since then, which of course has um, impacted negatively the perception of, of investors and creditors and made it um, the, the economy less dynamic. But we've also seen an end to that credit fueled expansion. Um, the government um, got in a position um, where it was struggling to repay um, the loans that it taken out, some of these infrastructure projects, um, the, the money was spent, the projects were built, but maybe they were hugely over budget or took time or just simply didn't produce sort of returns or have the kind of um, positive catalytic effect um, that was hoped for. Um, and so all that money that was borrowed, the government was struggling to pay back. And, and that's led to um, you know, a massively reduced amount of government spending and, and borrowing. Um, and when that's comes at the same time as this increase in political volatility. And, and of course, there might well be a relationship there in terms of reduced growth, um, exacerbating uh, political instability. Um, that has a compounding effect and, and just makes things even more difficult economically. The country, although it's very resilient, the people are very resilient, the state is very resilient, it does seem to be in something of an economic rut at the moment. Uh, it hasn't escaped these debt problems yet. And, we, we ha and, and even though we've had this peace deal, we still have all sorts of violence elsewhere. Um, so we haven't really entered a period of economic optimism and, and expansion again yet, but you know, hopefully that will be, um, that hopefully that will come soon. Well, is that, is that hope that you mentioned, is it, is it tied to um, the government's 10-year um, plan, uh, its growth and transformation plan, which is, um, a 10-year development plan that runs all the way to 2030. Well, if how does he aim to to fund that? Looking at um, you know, well, yeah, very, very, yeah, very good question. I mean, that's that's the you know, these government plans uh, um, you know, can obviously be um, very useful um, for focusing um, attention and, and resources on your know, critical growth industries but but of course they're not necessarily they're much easier to put together than they are to implement and i think you raised the key financing question there um you know, it's it's the second stage of this government's um sort of economic modernization plans um it's been very difficult to carry out the sort of changes um that were envisaged you know whether that sort of liberalization of the banking sector creation of a stock market um, all sorts of privatization plans and logistics and the sugar industry and, and, and various other areas. It's also been slow progress to sort of end the telecoms monopoly in Ethiopia and, and attract bidders and, and investment into that sector. And that's because of these difficult economic and, and political circumstances. So I think, you know, you raise a very valid question. Um, the intentions are still there, uh, as they always are. You know, to boost various, um, you know, to try and realize potential in various export industries, um, you know, whether that's in, in manufacturing or 
um, agriculture. Um, there's also your plans to massively increase tourism, for example, um, and 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 all sorts of other schemes in in the works. You know, again, there's there's those sort of financial modernization and liberalization plans. Um, but it is going to be difficult for the government to focus and execute those plans um, if the instability continues and if the financing isn't there. And I think you, I think the, the critical thing there is some sort of sequencing in terms of um, expanding and sustaining and maintaining peace. Um, that should lead to some uh, debt relief, which has been in the works for a while. Um, and once the debt relief and is is in place and the government is more in a sort of more solid stable fiscal position um then it can start looking at new um financing options for all of these plans so that's sort of where, where we're at at the moment yeah speaking of debt relief and also speaking of financing speaking of the economic model economic modernization and liberalization what you mentioned before that um china played a very key role in 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 the growth we've seen in the 15 last 15 years in terms of like supporting the infrastructure, you know, development. Uh, but we've also seen during the war, we've seen some sort of uh, contention, like, you know, the, the government forces President Abiy had uh, criticized uh, President Biden's uh, policy towards both sides, um, you know, falling short of accusing them of, um, you know, maybe propping up um, the, the Tigray uh, TPLF. So do, do you think there's a geopolitical competition here between, you know, the West and China in terms of, you know, the development project in, 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 and then the link to, to conflicts in that country? Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, yeah, China has, um, it, it, was a, it was an important partner um, in, in Ethiopia during that period of expansion that we we talked about and i think it remains a, a, an important partner and, and, and potentially could return to its previous prominence um if we just take you know, china on its on its own i think they have been burned let's say um by some of the the political difficulties that the country has run into um and the lack of return let's say on, on some of these major infrastructure projects and the, and the government's difficulties in in repaying debt, so I think that has led China to to reconsider um, its its position in Ethiopia. I think, as I my understanding is, it, it's done elsewhere. Um, also, I think you know it is the, still the case that um, we don't see too much Chinese um, involvement in a sort of the internal political situation of a country like Ethiopia. So it hasn't really been a big player, to my understanding, um, in trying to resolve some of these extreme political difficulties um but um of course you know for the for the us it's 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 very different um the us is is always prominent in these sorts of peace and security discussions uh, and that's been no no different um in ethiopia um obviously opinions vary on 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 what the us has been up to um my understanding is that um i mean we'll, there's no doubt that the U.S. was highly supportive of Prime Minister Abiy at the beginning of his tenure. Um, there was a slow reaction by the U.S. and its Western allies to the, the threat of war in Tigray and the, the war itself. They seemed to hope and perhaps sort of tacitly um, support 
um, the, the intervention in Tigray and perhaps hoped that it would be resolved quickly. I think when the war um, began to look like it was going to be prolonged and the reports of atrocities and the, 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 the facto blockade of Tigray came out, then the US's posture changed. But of course, by that time, um, there was a new US administration in, mm. in office as well. Um, and then I think we saw the, the US's um, sort of expressed concerns about um, human rights and, and pushing for, um, for, for peace and a ceasefire take over. And that was not something which the government ever took kindly to. Uh, they characterized the operation in Tigray as a law enforcement operation and, and denied that there was any human rights abuses and they described the, the TPLF leadership as, as treasonous essentially and said that any state would have had to take the action that they took. So they did not take kindly to that sort of US positioning. Um, and I think that's what led to the tensions. Of course, there was also some sort of US sanctions, um, reductions in assistance and, um, and travel bans and asset freezes placed on military leaders. And, and yes, the, the, the Ethiopian um, government um, felt like they were being treated the same as Tigray's leaders who they had branded treasonous terrorists. Um, Nothing particularly new here, I think, in terms of the bigger picture. Um, Ethiopia is, is pragmatic in terms of its approach to foreign partnerships and affairs. Um, the US, the EU and like-minded entities are strong and consistent supporters of development of social services in, in Ethiopia, um, as well as humanitarian assistance. And the government is, is happy to maintain those relations whilst keeping um, trying to keep control of the of the actors in Ethiopia, but they will look elsewhere for political support when necessary, whether that's to the Gulf, whether that's to Turkey, whether that's to China. Um, they are, uh, like I say, pra pragmatic in terms of their um, foreign engagements. And, and I think that, um, that gets, um, that th these things come to the fore and the, and the tensions grow. Uh, when you have a situation um, as we did in Ethiopia with the civil war um, and the US taking quite a prominent position, um, yeah. adopting posi adopting positions that simply ran against um, the government's interests. Yeah, what, 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 one of the dynamics of, of that war, if, if I come back to the uh, TPLF government, war, is, is the, um, the spillover effect to, to the region. So we, we see that there, there was Maybe it was credible or not, but you, you, you can tell, tell tell us if that's credible or not. That we had um involvement of Eritrea. Uh that's right yeah. in, in that conflict. So how much of that, how much did that conflict impact or how much does it tie into the regional peace and stability and conflict within the Horn of Africa? And also we could comment on Eritrea's involvement in that in that war. Well, the issue of the Horn of Africa, of course, it's a troubled place um, anyway, you know, in, in, whether it's Somalia or Sudan or South Sudan or, or Eritrea, even without the uh, internal conflict in Ethiopia. And then Ethiopia previously was um, something of a stabilizing force, had a strong peacekeeping role, um, mm -hmm. and, and its internal tensions were largely kept under con control. When they exploded, of course, it has a destabilizing effect on the horn makes it more difficult to establish any sort of semblance of peace and security across the, the region. Um, 
And Eritrea's involvement comes because of the long rivalry between Eritrea's leadership, President Isaiah Safwerki and the leaders of the TPLF. So it seems essentially that President Isaiah saw an opportunity to, um, to get rid of the, the TPLF once and for all when they fell into dispute with the new Ethiopian prime minister. So yes, Eritrea was um, integrally involved in the conflict. Um, and they are still um, an important player um, and consideration now, um, because one of the things that happened with the, the November 2022 peace deal is that um, there were some actors, uh, notably Eritrea, but also in Ethiopia, um, some elements from the Amhara region um, who felt that Prime Minister Abiy had essentially betrayed them by making peace with the TPLF in the manner that he did. Um, um, and th th that has led to um, a considerable deterioration in the relationship between Eritrea and Ethiopia, um, a relationship which had only got back on track when Prime Minister Abiy came to power in 2018. And it was a very significant rapprochement and normalization of bilateral relations that had been frozen since the Ethiopia-Eritrea war back in 2000. Um, and also we've seen a serious uprising in Amhara gather pace um, this year, partly um, because they believe that the federal government has turned against them and is now essentially allied with, their, um, with the TPLF. I mean, there's other factors as well. Um, but yeah, it's had a very, de very destabilizing effect for a number of reasons. There's also the Sudan conflict, um, and uh, a territorial dispute between Ethiopia and Sudan, which is adjacent to the Tigray conflict area. Um, that seems to be sort of simmering rather than exploding at the moment, but that has been a, a situation that has, has long worried um, people concerned about, about regional stability. Um, so the sort of the prospect of the two conflicts merging or, um, or of um, you know, perhaps um, Sudanese actors um, and their allies are you know, taking action to support one side in the Tigray conflict because of their ongoing dispute with the with the Ethiopian government. So there's there's all sorts of concerns, other concerns about regional um, destabilization as well. You're quite right. We, we we saw this in the in the Rwanda genocide as well, where you had uh, countries like uh, Uganda or you know getting involved or Burundi getting involved in these conflicts. Um, but one thing you mentioned, it, it looks like this peacekeeping or no, this uh, peace deal that was struck, mm -hmm. it looks like it's very controversial. Uh, it looks like some people are not happy with it. So what is this peace deal? What are the actors that were involved in this peace deal? What makes it controversial? Well, it was signed between the, the TPLF and the, and the federal government. Um, and you know, as we've, we've gone over, it, it, it did bring an end to large-scale fighting. So, of course, these things are in the, the eye of the beholder. I think many people would look at the peace deal and, and of course, they would acknowledge um, weaknesses in it, but they would say that actually it's not really controversial because um, it's actually a, a positive um, development and an event because it brought an end to the, the fighting and the, and the fighting was, you know, killing many people and, and ruining even more livelihoods. Um, it, it, it is also the fact that the, the, this peace deal between the TPLF and the federal government was something of a sort of elite pact, really. Um, it's like they, 
they were fighting one day and then they decided that that actually they were may as well discontinue the fighting perhaps they realized that the the cost of achieving their stated goals was was too high um and so we've seen something of a sort of an elite rapprochement and an elite pact um it hasn't actually resolved any of the political disputes at the at the heart of the war you know, whether that's sort of um Tigray's role in the federation and the balance of power between the federal government federal government and regional governments like Tigray or there is a very serious um territorial dispute which led um Amhara region um and associated supporting factions take over large chunks of Tigray which they claim should never have been part of Tigray and, and should have become part of Amhara um, and there is the unresolved enmity between the TPLF leadership and Eritrea. Um, there's also more sort of nuts and bolts elements like the peace deal talked about the full demobilization of Tigray's army. Well that hasn't really occurred yet um and you know there is there's, there's other key components of the, the of the peace deal that haven't been implemented in terms of the sort of normalization of the of the, of the relationship between Tigray region and the and the federal government um so i think you know, we at crisis group would say um it's very important and to be welcomed because it brings peace but of course it has these huge deficiencies and they need to be worked upon um, but the concern in Amhara, um, Eritrea, as described, was that simply it allowed um, the TPLF leadership to, um, it, it, you know, it, it facilitated their political rehabilitation, essentially. Um, and that isn't something that people wanted. Um, and so that is where it is, it, it is in those um, locations where it is considered most controversial because they, they do not think that the TPLF or its leadership who prosecuted the war should have been allowed to politically survive. Yeah, if, if I bring the conversation now to, again, to the regions, to the you know, contentious dam, you know, with, with Ethiopia and Egypt, and then link that into the conflict and, and the issue of uh, climate change. So I think first of all, I look at it from different layers. So I look at it in terms of how that plays into the regional uh, dynamics of the conflict with, with Egypt, because some, some have said uh, the US you know, took the posture it took because of its support for, for Egypt and, and, and the controversial you know, in the Renaissance Dam. Uh, do, mm. do, do, do you agree with this, with this, um, with this um, view? No. Um, but of course, there's more to it than than a simple rejection of of that. I mean, I think as a sort of matter of real politique, I think that Egypt is a more important ally for the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that leads to certain things, and and maybe it means that you know the State Department um, tends to be sort of more understanding or sympathetic of the Egyptian position. I think they're also more concerned about upsetting Cairo. Um, mm. And then I think you, probably over the years, you know, Cairo has done a better job of getting across its narrative. 
than, than Ethiopia. That's something that Ethiopia has been working very hard at. Um, but I think when it comes to the dam, this idea that Ethiopia, this, this notion that Egypt is completely reliant on the Nile and that it is an ex existential threat if the flow is interrupted and that this dam will interrupt the flow. I think that's you know, convinced a lot of people. Um, and of course, there is you know, huge concerns. Like, of course, Egypt is, is very heavily reliant on, on the Nile. Um, I think the, you know, the, the Ethiopian position has been, well, we also face an existential threat um, from poverty and, and, and drought. Um, and that this dam is absolutely critical for our development. And, and because of the historic power imbalance and um, unfair treaties that were imposed upon Ethiopia, um, mm. or that people have tried to impose upon Ethiopia to argue that they do not have rights to develop projects on the Nile. Um, they, they've said mm. that enough, enough is enough, and we, we do have that right, and this, this, mm. um, this river um, largely originates in Ethiopia. It is critical for our development. Uh, we understand the downstream concerns, um, but we're going to construct and manage this project in a way that's not going to do um, significant harm. Um, and that's what's led to the to the dispute. Obviously, that Ethiopian position has been largely rejected um, by Cairo, but also in Khartoum as well at times. Um, and I think the international actors have been looking at various ways over the course of this long dispute now, you know, over over a decade, over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and they've been trying to find ways to get past it. And there's no doubt that at times that's led the US to take a position which is far more favourable to. Cairo, um, notably when they um, tried to sort of force through an, an agreement with Ethiopia, ultimately rejected. Um, mm. So I think those are the sorts of reasons that um, I think those are the sorts of reasons that's that's led the the US to take this um, position. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated um, it's a complex issue, and both, both sides feel very strongly about it. And various international actors, not just the the US also, notably the Emiratis recently, have been trying to resolve it, but not without much success mm. so far. And it, that's, I think so. I think that's the issue. And you know, mm. that it has. It, it's not that they took a, a partisan yeah. position, yeah. which also led them into a partisan position on the on the Tigray war. Absolutely, they said they said things and took positions as, as did myself and my organisation and many others on the Tigray war that upset the federal government. But it isn't because of some favoritism um, towards partisanship, towards um, the, the, the Egyptian position on the Nile. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. You did, you did mention something about the conundrum that um, each, mm. um, Ethiopia faces in terms of like uh, pursuing its development projects, mm -hmm. uh, which, is a, which it has a right to, and also a concern with, with the Nile or with the dam or, and maybe link up to climate change and stuff like that. How, how do you look at, if I bring it to like that link between climate change, the, the need to, you know, address that threat and also the need to focus on this development, which is has a right to, how does Ethiopia balances these two critical issues? Well, I think, yeah, it's how, how does Ethiopia balance these issues and also how do the, the host of, of other actors, international actors, mm -hmm. how do they think about these issues, I think, uh, are, are important. 
I mean, I think what we can see with, with Ethiopia's sort of green development strategies um, is that they have um, quite sensibly, really, they've foregrounded um, hydropower um, as a clean energy source uh, and also something which <clears throat> increases water storage capacity um which can then be used in in times of drought right i mean you mm. you could deal with a drought if you've got water um mm. you can deal with vulnerable um sorry you could deal with volatile um inconsistent dwindling rainfall if you're able to keep dams topped up and have mm. all year round irrigation regardless i mean that's hugely simplified mm. but but that is the sort of approach that ethiopia um, ever since the, you know, the sort of the heyday of, of Belisanari's development um, approach has taken. Uh, yes, we recognise um, climatic climate change and climatic volatility and the, and the problems of extreme weather. Uh, but what we need to do um, is utilise our water resources for our development, and and so that we can be more resilient um, to 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 droughts in particular. Um, you know, Ethiopia is an agricultural nation and it suffers greatly from, from mm -hmm. drought. Um, the, the difficulties, of, of course, are in terms of implementation. Um, and you know, we, we should also note that uh, this Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, it's just one of a number of hydropower projects that is in the far west of the country, um, you know, in a, in, a, in, a much more, in a much wetter area. A lot of the food security and drought problems Droughts, which are uh, understood to be exacerbated by um, by right, rising temperatures and, and climate change, that a lot of that is in the east and the south of the country. Um, so it, it doesn't mean that just by increasing the water storage in the Nile Basin, um, then you can alleviate problems um, thousands of, of of miles away. Um, but this, you know, these, this, that, that, that is the type of approach that the they took to industrialization via uh, clean energy development capitalizing on ethiopia's hydropower resources along with that would come massively increased irrigation capabilities the difficulty has been implementation um we have seen a general slowdown in, in economic development that also applies to the energy se sector we haven't seen some um, transformative increase in irrigation capacity um a lot of things um, including these areas where there was a lot of momentum have seen a slowdown and that's because of those um economic and political factors we've mentioned as as well as other ones so i think the, the plan broadly was if not the right one it was you know completely understandable and and, and coherent um but un unfortunately um because of the the, sort of the the problems and challenges is still um, a huge amount to do. And that means that essentially Ethiopia is in a similar food security situation, if not worse. It is still as vulnerable to drought um, in an era of increasing temperatures um, as it ever has been. And that is a, that is a huge threat. Um, and of course, this isn't something that development partners are, are unaware of. Everyone is. Um, but they just haven't been able to make these systemic transformative changes um, that they envisaged, even though they identified the problem. Does financing add to, add to that? Because I've seen where I've seen an article that says uh, uh, in in the next in the next couple of years, uh, Africa, you know, including Ethiopia, definitely would 
need roughly about 50 billion uh i need about 50 billion dollars a year to to be able to adapt and mitigate uh, this kind of dramatic <clears throat> issues uh the, the issues that and then there's been that i think maybe that condition from from western partners that have looked at uh placed financing climate clim, uh, climate financing put that condition on transition to more cleaner energies so does does ethiopia like many other places in africa do they do they do they suffer from this kind of policies in terms of you know if you're looking more broadly like africa's you know like africa seems to be very vulnerable to 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 the impact of climate change even though it's it's as committed um, you know contributed very tiny to to uh, uh, global glass uh, emission, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission. So, what 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 do, what do you see? Do you see these? It's, you mentioned international development partners, and he said they are not unaware of this. So, what role are they playing in terms of like what role is finance playing, and how are they maybe inadvertently through their policies uh, affecting you know this kind of like development issues in, in Ethiopia? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a lot there. That's a, that's a pretty complex issue. Um, but um, so first of all, I mean, it's it's obviously the case, and it's and it's very significant that Ethiopia has huge um, deficiencies, you know, in in critical infrastructure um, and and services, and that that obviously requires a lot of capital investment to make up that that gap um you know, whether whether we're talking about energy or communication or or, or transport um, it doesn't doesn't really, really matter we wherever you look and, and also there's you know, there's often a very significant gap in sort of the resources of the government and therefore the sort of capacity of the, the state to govern and administer but i think if you don't have that then it's hard to build um a dynamic and sustainable market economy driven by private economic activity on on the back of it so my understanding is and you would know this better than me is that many african countries are in a similar position and yes they require huge amounts of of, of investment um, and that also needs to go into the you know, despite all the efforts in ethiopia to improve social services there's still always a lot more work that needs to be done um, in the education health systems, water systems, um, systems to support agriculture. We've just been talking about irrigation. And so, yes, a vast amount of capital is needed. Um, I don't think there's any any doubt about that. Um, one other thing to mention is that, of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the goal here, um, which is that what we really want is for these countries to be able to generate the the, the capital and and to and to make these investments and and to do this work themselves. Um, so if you have a project like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, um, and and I think here we start to you know, to touch on the the policy of international partners. Um, you know, Ethiopia said we we don't one we have the resources and capacity now, and we do not want to wait for international financing for this project. We're going to go ahead and do it ourselves. Hmm. Um, and partly that's just a positive thing, right? You know, a country taking responsibility mm. for its own mm. development. Um, but also they said that um, because of the way the international system operates and because of these sort of anti-hydropower 
start because obviously hydropower whilst it's a clean energy source is very destructive of, of downstream ecosystems mm -hmm. right also displaces people mm -hmm. so because of the opposition um, to have large dams um it means we can't access as quickly as certainly not as quickly as we want the financing we need so we're going to do it ourselves um and that's you know that's shows some of the important problems um and and that that also is you know it, it's it's far wider in in application um donors western donors charities um the um aid agencies the, the un you know doing lots of things in ethiopia perhaps spending three four billion dollars a year um on humanitarian and development projects not very many of them were building the hard infrastructure that ethiopia needed um and i think governments as we've had in ethiopia and i'm sure in many places elsewhere they say that's not what we need you know what what we need um is is the capital and the assistance the technical assistance and uh, to build the vital infrastructure that we need that isn't what was necessarily coming through the western system and of course that's where china and other international partners have, have come in and I, as i see it you know that doesn't seem like a disastrous division of labor to me um if some people want to support um some global actors want to support social service development others want to support physical infrastructure development um maybe that's a, it could be a good thing um for for a developing country um so i think all of those issues are are there uh, I'm, sh I'm sure they're more widely applicable um the fact of the matter is until ethiopia gets its own political house in order um it's not going to be in a position to access the sort of international assistance that it needs but of course you know even if everything um e even if ethiopia had done everything that it could on its part of the bargain then there would still be these issues um about the the conditions that come with financing um and the extent to to which the the government and and others in ethiopia are simply doing things because that's what donors want or whether donors are funding things that people in ethiopia want um but of course these are sort of fairly um perennial questions i think about development but they're definitely relevant in in ethiopia um and they, they have been particularly relevant towards hydropower and and i think will continue to be um in, in lots of areas yeah, uh, well, let me ask you the final question. You, you you mentioned just just now that you know everything is hinges on Ethiopia putting its political house together, mm -hmm. and uh, the way I interpret that is this: no, no matter how much we focus on the economic development, uh, the social, you, you did mention the uprising in Amhara, you mentioned you know all of these pockets of you know distance or pocket of disappointments or the places so it, do, it does seem like there, there are uh several identities in ethiopia just like everywhere in africa where you have plural identities where you know some some categories of people are not happy they want to be uh whether they feel excluded from from certain benefits so if you look at it in terms of how does ethiopia or its partner how do they focus on dealing with our social issue and so i think what i'm saying is we know that the, the economic growth that they envisaged is dependent on you know getting this political house together or getting this you know addressing all of these different factions bringing them together 
how in your own opinion how do you think that is possible to be able to for how do you think i think the question i think the big question is how is ethiopia able to achieve its economic goals you know very very effectively without the threat of uh sliding back into into the kind of conflicts we saw in the last two or three years mm. Well, look. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, like I, I have, I have struggled to, um, you know, to really think positively about um, the future of Ethiopia in this type of regard over the past few years because of the sort of derailing of that economic process, progress, and and the an explosion of the the political problems into just some of the most sort of extreme violence imaginable, and then the knock-on effects on the economic situation. And there's just the capabilities of the government, and there's just a sense of sort of fragmentation and polarization that, of course, we see elsewhere. So I don't, I don't want to give the wrong impression. You know, I, I really, it, it is quite difficult to be sort of rationally positive as I see it. Um, and I think maybe that sort of negativity and the pessimism leads us to sort of the beginnings of a of charting a way forward. Um, I think we have to be. Um, people have to be quite um, you know, limited in their in their expectations um, because the situation has got so difficult. Um, what what the, what the country is very good at is is surviving, um, and the people are obviously fantastically resilient. Um, what we now need to see is some positive political action. When we're not going to resolve Ethiopia's political disputes, they're, they're deep historical disputes. Um, you know, we've had this sort of institutionalization um, of those um, historical differences in the form of the current federation. Um, there needs to be um, you know, some sort of coming together in terms of a political discussion to try and work out the way forward. And, and what that means essentially is how do you share power um, in Ethiopia? Um, how, do you, you know, how, do you, how do you protect minority rights? How do you respect people's cultural, linguistic, and ethnic and group rights, um, whilst also fostering a greater sense of, of, of Ethiopianness and, and Ethiopian unity? These are very, very difficult um, questions and, and challenges, and, and they're not going to be achieved overnight. Instead, we just have to put a stop to the, this disastrous polarization, fragmentation, and violence, and start the building towards something more positive, but it's obviously going to be a very piecemeal, very stop-start um, process. There's, there's, no, there's no silver bullet, you know, it's, it, you can't, there's no blueprint that can be applied that can sort out Ethiopia's political problems and all these um, entrenched differences that have, that have grown up over the, the, the centuries and the decades and the years um, you know, coming up to the, the present. But we just need to start putting things, um, stop getting out of reverse and putting things into a sort of slow positive direction politically um you know, maybe a sort of new some something of a new generation of leaders who are not so um embroiled in the disputes of the, of the past and the sort of the, the political culture that has accompanied that that would probably benefit now if that occurs then hopefully we've got some semblance of elite political stability it isn't going to resolve all the problems it's not going to stop all the violence there will still be outliers and rejectionists and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it could stabilize things politically um, at, this, at the sort of center at least and, and give a semblance of stability. Once that happens, um, then there is no reason that you can't 
um, regain some of the economic momentum as well. Um, could that also have a sort of, could you also begin to enter some sort of virtuous cycle where people see the economic dividend um, of semblance of peace and stability, and that reinforces uh, more positive political action. Um, it seems that one of the problems we've got in Ethiopia is that because many, many people do not have jobs or they have terribly paying jobs, um, it's quite easy to convince them to join a militia and, and get paid a certain amount of money. So it's, it's easy for political elites to instrumentalize people. If we start you know, growing the, the economy again, um, then there will be more jobs, more cash to go around, there's something else for people to focus on. Um, there will also be more you know, government revenue, tax revenue to, to share around the, the federation, which I think has been also one of the problems. So I think that's what we have to hope for. We just have to put a stop to the rot, shift things into a, um, you know, into a forward, get some forward momentum going gradually, and then build from mm. there and hope that positive economic um, development reinforces um, political negotiations and, and, and progress. Yeah, um, thank you very much, um, um, William. It's 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 quite amazing. You've said you said uh, what you've said does apply to other places in Africa. We we, we have to uh, we have to economic growth and you know dealing with minority rights, dealing with you know protecting the rights of other people, including people in 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 that growth. You know should go hand in hand, and also. You know, just addressing issues of poverty, issues of poor governments, would definitely, you know, remove that incentive for people joining uh, this violent group. Oh, it is a very, very great insight, and I'm really grateful for you honoring that invitation. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you. And of course, yeah, they're very, very difficult questions. And one of the one of the first things we need to do is kind of just gradually increase the awareness, the understanding of, of the depth of the problems and the challenges and the way forward. So hopefully. Um, hopefully your podcast can, can play a positive role in Thank that. Thank you, brother. I hope so too. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll bring you back again to come uh, see the progress, talk about the progress okay. in Ethiopia. That would be great. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you. And have a great, great, have a great day.